When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name is Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. On today's episode, I want to welcome Matthew Mitchum, who's a former Australian diver and trampolinist. As a diver, he was the 2008 Olympic champion in the 10-metre platform, having received the single highest dive score in Olympic history. This made him the first openly gay athlete to win an Olympic gold medal. He's also the first Australian male to win an Olympic gold medal in diving since Dick Eve at the 1924 Summer Olympics. This was one of the first recorded episodes of Movie Mind, and we just want to let you know that the team are working incredibly hard behind the scenes to improve audio quality and create the best possible experience for each and every one of you. So Matt, thank you so much for coming on my new podcast, Move Your Mind. I've known you for, I don't know, five or six years now, I think it is, but I really appreciate it. It's been a while. Um, I was, that was the first question I was going to ask you before we get into it. Do you remember wow, how we actually been? first met? Do you remember how we actually first met? Uh, was it Celebrity Splash? That's it. Me it attempting to dive. Yeah, which did not go right. well. <laughs> oh, you did okay. <laughs> I did okay. I remember doing a belly whacker off the ten meter platform. Um, so oh, that yes. was pretty painful, but. Yeah, it was an interesting experience, but it has. It's amazing how time flies, and um, over I've you know stayed in touch with you sporadically since then. And uh, like I said, really appreciate you coming on here. You've got an incredible story, and this whole podcast is about speaking to people that are prominent in society and have achieved big things, but having more real conversations and learning from people like yourself about. What is it that's made you remain successful and not just successful in external means, but in actually getting, having a good daily quality of life and having, you know, that daily habits that sort of help you achieve that mindset? So I guess my first question for you is, you know, can you tell us a bit about your background? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, I guess I'm most well known for being an Olympic diver. I went to two Olympic Games, um, Beijing in 2008 and London in 2012. And in Beijing, I won the gold medal for the men's 10-meter platform event, which was amazing, (laughs) Um, I guess. The other things that I think I'm most well-known for are the fact that I was the first openly gay, like most openly gay, sorry, first openly gay Olympic champion ever in history because I did compete at my first games as an openly gay man, and I I won those. Um, and yes, there have been other 
gay Olympic champions, but usually most of the time they came out after they retired. I think that is particularly a special achievement for me. Um, and the other thing I guess I'm quite known for is, um, you know, it's my um, candor in speaking about my relationship with my own mental health. I wrote a book about it in 2012, and I was very open about um, my history with mental ill health and how that manifested in, you know, certain <laughs> self-destructive behaviours, um, and then how I actually addressed that and um, and recovered from that. And so, yeah, I, I speak about that quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty amazing journey you've been on. And, you know, first of all, congratulations for everything you have achieved and are achieving. And, you know, I was going to mention that being the first openly gay athlete to win a gold medal, it's a huge thing. I mean, that's a historical thing that, I mean, you've probably seen an aftermath of the widespread message that's caused. And I'm sure it's helped so many people. I think that's what's so amazing about everything you've done, obviously winning a gold medal. It's something most of us can only dream about doing, but the other sides of what you've achieved, I think are just as big as doing that because not many people that are a public figure are willing to go and actually speak on a public level and be honest and show that vulnerability and realism and it saves lives. So I think it's incredible what you're doing. And I guess, you know, my question around that is how difficult was that to um, to do that and, you know, be the first at speaking out about these things and putting yourself out there when I'm sure you didn't know, you know, what the result of that would be or what it would lead to, but you did it anyway because you knew, you know, that was what you needed to do, you know. what? How, how difficult was that? Um, I had been through my own little journey, I guess, with my identity and um, and sexuality you know, when I was 18, um, I actually retired from diving um, because I was quite unhappy. I went through this pretty profound period of depression from 14 to 18, and diving, for the most part, kept me on the straight and narrow um, with, you know, relatively minor deviations. Um, <laughs> but it definitely kept me being a lot more responsible than I would have been. It, it gave me a direction and a trajectory. It gave me a purpose um, doing diving throughout my teenage years because I, you know, I had this goal, this very powerful, emotionally charged goal that I wanted to be the best in the world. And so, um, yeah, so that kept me in diving even when I was not enjoying it and when the depression that sort of had permeated every aspect of my life having diving just it just gave me purpose so you know so I'm very grateful for that um but it ended up just not quite being enough um when I was 18 and and so I you know I went through this whole journey of personal sort of getting comfortable with myself and my identity and my sexuality and, and then when I moved I, I moved cities and started diving again um 15 months before the Beijing Games and I sort of saw this as an opportunity for a fresh start and so I I had sort of promised myself that I was going to be upfront and honest with everybody that I'd met um, about who I was, and um, that sort of philosophy came about when I qualified for the Olympics, and um, and a journalist was profiling me in the lead up and asked, you know, all the biographical questions, how old I was, where I lived, who I lived with, and and I just said oh, I live with my boyfriend, and she was kind of blown away that I had just like said this. 
so openly and asked if I actually wanted that to go in the article because it was a pretty big deal. Like in 2008, there were no other openly gay Olympic athletes that, you know, she knew of. Um, and, you know, there was this stigma that the gays don't get the big endorsement deals. And I'd had the experience of not being open um, with myself and my sexuality. Um, and that was not a place that I wanted to be in again. So, yeah, I made that decision to to have that go to print. And that ended up being obviously the the main point of the whole article. But it ended up being front page news of the Sydney Morning Herald. And uh, it was actually the best decision I ever made. Yeah, massively. Oh, 100%, you know, the sort of positives that come out of that. But like you said, that was something I had read from, I think you talking in other articles about how it led to you missing out on big sponsorship deals and different things that, you know, you should be entitled to. And it it's just crazy that it can have that impact. I mean, was that difficult? Because I, I guess in sport in general, individual sport, the financial reward is often nowhere near what it should be. But, you know, I think it's completely warped that it could have that impact, but it's a reality and starting to change now. But was that a, a difficult thing to deal with as well? Um, I mean, I grew up very poor, so, you know, it was like not, I never felt entitled to, you know, free money from endorse. I guess it's not really free money, but, you know, because you are doing work for it. But yeah, I never felt entitled to advertising money, but I certainly know that, I mean, and who knows if it, it was exclusively like, because I came out or whether because 2008 also happened to coincide with the global financial crisis um i will never know because i don't have the experience of being you know like a straight athlete or a closeted athlete to compare to being an openly gay athlete because i was openly gay right from the very beginning so i don't actually have anything to compare it against but yeah i never got any big endorsements um but i still would not change it for the world like the the response that I got was 99.99% overwhelmingly positive and supportive, and I gained a whole community out of it, like a whole community of support, and I've made really wonderful connections because of it. You know, I still, you know, just two days ago, I got a message from uh, a man in America who doesn't know me. Um, he's never met me before, but he just took it upon himself to send me a message 12 years after I won the gold medal saying that he has always been really, really inspired by me because of, you know, my openness. So that's worth so much, you know, that's worth so much in self-esteem. Um, and you know, that has more of an inherent value than money does. Although money would be really nice. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Well, we all would like more money, but like you're saying, you know, it's the example you're just giving there's no, literally no price tag you can put on that of just doing something like that that can have such an impact on people. You know, you cannot put a price on it. No amount of money, fame, attention, whatever else it is, is going to replace the feeling that you will get and the impact it can make to other people from actually just doing things that are genuine and real. And I'm sure you've seen people that have a lot of notoriety, money, etc. I've known a lot of people like that and I've seen firsthand how that is just simply not the solution. Um, I know in sport, you know, it's such a big problem. I'm, this is another thing I wanted to sort of ask you about. We see a lot of athletes that just go off the rails after their career. I was watching a, the documentary about Ben Cousins about a month ago and 
it's horrific to see where his life has gone to. You've seen it in Grant Hackett, Ian Thorpe, different swimmers, all these athletes where I guess a big part of that is like what you said before, your whole life is built up on this system that I'm dedicating myself to this one cause of winning a gold medal or competing at the highest level or whatever it is. And then when you get it, because you've built your whole system on this one thing, what's next? You know, that that, that feeling of, okay, but I've done it now. How come I don't feel complete or whole? Um, that must be incredibly bizarre feeling, number one, to actually achieve this thing and go through these massive highs and then lows that come with it and have to question things again. And I mean, have you seen this as being, you know, in general in competitive sport, a, a big issue that needs more attention? Um, yes, absolutely. And um, I experienced exactly the same thing firsthand. Um, and it was something that I, yeah, I went through exactly the same thing. You know, it, you know, it was incredibly, you know, validating for a couple of weeks until, you know, until I went and compared myself again by looking at the world rankings and found that even after I won the Olympics, I was actually still number two in the world because a Chinese diver had won more events earlier in the year than I had and so had accrued more total points than I had. So, you know, even though I won the Olympic gold medal like this, you know, I wasn't the best in the world technically. And so, you know, it was a very... um a very short-lived high um, and was nowhere near as validating as what I had spent my whole life working to try and achieve. Like, it, it, I didn't feel as loved and popular and um, fulfilled as what I thought I was going to. You know, like, I fully understand that that is a product of sort of faulty thinking and being sort of... Um, relying too much on external sources of esteem so like on relying on achievements and um and uh, whatever um as being i guess uh, indicative or as being the the milestones of your value these external achievements so i realized that i'd become a human doing rather than a human being and that you know i thought my value was in my achievements or in the gold medal rather than in me, myself. Um, you know, I, I literally felt like people only cared about the gold medal um, and that I was just, you know, like a coat rack for the medal. And, like, it, in one way it did help me to set new goals and push myself further after the Beijing Games, and I did. I eventually became um, number one in the world in 2010. But again, like, that wasn't very fulfilling, it wasn't fulfilling at all, actually. So, um, yeah, and then obviously you feel like a big sham um, and uh, and you feel very... I felt a lot of shame because I felt like my feelings were unjustified because, you know, like I had all these amazing achievements and essentially everybody believes I have the world at my feet and and I've got all of this stuff and yet I feel this way. So I felt like my feelings were unjustified and I felt shame for that. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, feeling shame about feeling bad doesn't make you feel less bad. It makes you feel more bad. <laughs> um, Compounds, yeah. That shame prevents you from sort of reaching out and getting help. Um, and so that led to, you know, falling back into very self-destructive ways of medicating my feelings or changing the way I felt uh, using sort of substances rather than actually doing any work on myself. Um, and obviously... You know, it's a very short-term solution, you know, and obviously every time you do that, it kind of perpetuates and reinforces that cycle because, you know, you've temporarily changed the way you feel, 
but then the consequence of that is that you feel even worse and then so you then repeat that cycle you then put substances in your body again to to make you feel better from the worseness that you just felt but then the consequence of that is that you feel even worse again and so that just every time you do it it perpetuates and reinforces the cycle and that's how sort of addiction um, happens and you know and you see the people you mentioned before Grant Hackett, Ian Thorpe, Ben Cousins, they have all had experiences of relying on alcohol or drugs to either um, numb or or just change the way they felt. And yeah, so I, I fell into the same trap until I completely burnt myself out and was forced to actually get help. Um, I went to rehab and that was when I first started like learning about what self-esteem is. That's when I learned that I did have such poor self-esteem. Um, I started, you know, learning about the fact that I was just completely reliant on all of these external sources of esteem rather than esteeming myself from within. And so, yeah, that began a, a massive journey of personal development for me. And, and that led me then to, because I'd seen so many other athletes go off the rails after their retirements, that then prompted me to try and put measures in place as I was leaving the sport because, you know, there's all of that identity stuff wrapped up in it as well. You know, if I'm not a swimmer or if I'm not a diver or if I'm not an athlete anymore, who am I? Like, I've mm -hmm. just spent my entire life doing this. I'm not good at anything else. I have I put all of my eggs in this one thing, you know, and I am considered to be at the top of this thing. I have to start something else now and I'm going to start at the very bottom and that doesn't match with you know the the esteem and the prestige that i spent so my whole entire life acquiring so yeah there's identity stuff in there too um and so i tried to create a program as i was leaving the sport to like a transition program to help other athletes transition out of sport and unbeknownst to me the ais the australian institute of sport was working on a similar program at the same time and so we passed it over to them because obviously they've got more resources than Diving Australia did. Um, so mm -hmm. it's certainly something that's being looked into at the moment because, yeah, Australian sport is very aware of this problem. Yeah, and probably a, a big part, you know, thanks to yourself and other athletes that have gone and tried to use their experience to, to help others. And that's what I love about your story. You're, there's not always a happy ending, whether it's an athlete or any of us that, go, you know, go through hardship and you've come out the other end and you're helping people and, you know, you're, you're passing on these messages and I think it's really powerful and um, yeah, well, it's not an that's easy... A way yeah. that, that's the way that I've learned how to actually esteem myself, how to generate mm -hmm. my own self-esteem um, is by doing esteemable acts, by doing things that make me feel better as a person, that make me feel better about myself. Mm -hmm. And so sharing my story and helping people, I mean, helping others is like the number one most effective way, in my opinion to improve your own self-esteem is to give selflessly or to help others um, and because then you feel better as as a person as a human being like you can't feel like a shit person if you're being of service to others if you're helping other people and so yeah that's this is one of the ways that I've learned how to how to make myself feel better about myself so that I don't yes yeah, so that I don't have the tendency to um, to rely exclusively on my achievements as a mm -hmm. as a signpost of my value as a person. Oh, absolutely. And there's just so many universal messages in what you're talking about. As I was saying before, we're now more conditioned than ever to 
feel in society like we need to prove ourselves that we are not valid unless we have more Instagram followers or we're doing more than the next person. And, you know, that comparison thing is just out of control now. It's it's scary. I've had to stop looking at Instagram most of the time because I just can't, you know, I get sucked into it. And I'm working in this area and I am so easily sucked into all of these things because it's powerful and it's hard to not be. You have to do the daily work, but it's so true what you said as well. Um, Helping someone, doing something that helps someone else, we can even look at it from a selfish level and say, well, if you want to feel good, you know, do something for other people and in turn we're actually going to feel better ourselves. But, you know, hopefully it's going to eventually get better, but it's a a little bit out of control um, at the moment. So, what are you um, working on at the moment? I know you're, you know, some of the things you've done recently, you're an author, musician, writer, performer, you had a critically acclaimed cabaret musical, all of these things seem to have that deeper message of you trying to get these positive uh, words of wisdom out to people. I mean, I sold out, really. I, um, <laughs> I When I was over in the UK, I uh, basically got my first full-time job and, um, and you know, was just working in an office in sales um, because, I mean, that was a humbling experience in itself because I did I went over to England and started trying to do what I was doing in Australia um, and realised that um, my name has no capital in the UK. I'm completely unknown, so my name has no value. And so no. I was getting no opportunity. Not even, not even with. Yeah, I thought they were. We... Well, I mean, they've got gold medalists of their own. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess it because nothing was happening, and so yeah. You know, yeah, that was a bit of humble pie that I had to. You know, and that was a, a growing experience for me because I, you know, I thought I'd done all of this work on self esteem, and um, and then this was like really thrust in my face that like how accustomed to and how much uh, how many opportunities came from the fact that my name is recognizable in Australia so um it forced me to reevaluate and and try a different tactic because obviously like as much as we hate it um or as much as you know ideally we would like it not to be the case the world goes around on money like you, you can't you just can't exist or live in a city where you have no support network or no family if you don't have money. Like, you have to pay your rent and mm-hmm. buy food, and that all takes money. And so I wasn't getting the same... I couldn't get the same opportunities. They weren't available to me over there because of my name, and so I had to basically um, get a real proper job, my first ever. And um, and what I found was that I really enjoyed it because uh, I just really liked the routine of having you know a nine to five job I guess I hadn't had that kind of routine since I was an athlete I liked the you know the fact that I had regular income which I've never had in my entire life like I grew up poor basically for my first 31 years of my life money has been a pretty scarce commodity and certainly not a regular thing in my life and it's basically been a source of anxiety for my entire life it was such an eye-opening experience. Like, I, I was always apprehensive about getting... I always thought an office job would be boring. And, in fact, I found it <laughs> really esteeming because I was good at my job. I was doing a job where, you know, there was a direct relationship between how hard I worked and how successful I was, um, which, you know, was very motivating for me. And so I, I brought a lot of the skills that I'd acquired as an athlete into my working life and um, and was rewarded for it. 
I've come back to Australia now because of um, coronavirus and um, now like getting an office job is, is not easy because it's everybody's lost their jobs and so now it's like, yeah, just doing my best to stay afloat. Mental health and well-being are real issues in the construction industry. Men in construction are twice as likely to take their own life compared to the ones who work in other industries. And that's just not good enough. With John Holland's help, we want to make a change. We've joined together to have honest conversations about mental health, life, and stories of people who have overcome challenges. When we hear about stories and struggles that sound a bit like ours, we can learn from each other and remember that we're not alone. I mean, I've applied, honestly, I've applied for over 200 jobs in the last well. two weeks in different cities even. But it's also like, you know, you have to put in the action and then let go of the outcome. Um, otherwise, you know, if you get too hung up on the outcome, you're just going to get like so... I'm exasperated, like, why aren't I getting any of these jobs? I can't control that. What I can control is applying for the jobs, and then the rest is out of my hands. I've done my job by applying for them. What else is in my hands, it is within my control, is um, looking for other ways to earn money. And so, yeah, just looking at different ways that I can actually, you know, use myself or my knowledge or my experiences um, in other ways to to earn money, you know, like... I don't know, coaching experience, like online coaching or, um, you know, or doing online engagements instead of like mm -hmm. in-person speaking engagements, do them online or, you know, that sort of thing. So it's about being flexible and adaptable um, and putting in the action wherever you can so that, um, you know, being somewhat in control of your destiny because even though putting in the action doesn't guarantee an outcome, it certainly puts you in a much better position for an outcome to happen compared to if you hadn't have put in any action. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's like that fine line, like what you're saying of putting in the effort for the action without expecting a specific result, which is so tricky to do. And I, I grapple with this daily and I get so attached to it, but I want to go this way. And I've had to deal with a similar thing to you coming back from Vancouver and being back here during this period. And I'm getting better at it, but it, it is so difficult. You know, you have these things in your head, I want it to go this way. And I can only imagine, you know, I guess the theme of a lot of this conversation is change, really. So many things in your life and all of our lives, you know, right now with coronavirus, I think it teaches all of us more than ever that we just basically we can't control anything. Everything's uncertain. We don't know. Anything can change overnight. This has been a you know huge example of it. The only thing we can do if we want to have peace of mind is learn to be okay with the uncertainty and control things that are in, in our power and just, you know, look at like what you're saying. I'm going to go and apply for 200 jobs. I don't know if that's going to lead to the desired outcome, but I've got these other options as well. You know, who knows where it's all going to lead. You might find in six months' time things have led to something you didn't even imagine, but it's 10 times better than you could have sat there and planned. So we just don't know. So it is having that open mind with direction. I think extremes in one way or the other are never healthy when if we go all in on, you know, obsessively working towards one thing without balance, that can burn us out but then if we become too easygoing and become carefree that can have pretty negative outcomes as well so it's it does seem to be this very you know fine line um that we have to walk along to find that balance but you know you've given us so many examples of that and the next part i wanted to talk about is with this podcast we are talking about this coronavirus i mean the big part about that is this uncertainty. You know, you've had to deal with this your whole life, change, uncertainty, overcoming fears. What would you say, I mean, it might be hard to sum up, but what would be some key things we could give 
someone listening to this, there's some key tools to deal with that. How do we cope with that? With overcoming fears, um, I mean, a big one for me was in the lead up to the London Olympic Games. I was dealing with, um, you know, going into the games being completely underprepared because of injuries um, and grappling with, yeah, with the expectation that people were putting on me or that I felt people were putting on me for me to defend my Olympic title. And even just the way that that is framed, like defend one's Olympic title, means that even if I had have come second, that would have been a failure because I hadn't defended my Olympic title. So like anything other than a win is a failure, which is really basically setting yourself up for pain and misery. So I had to, one, let go of other people's expectations and just focus on on myself. And then it was about, um, again, like just breaking everything down into what was within my control and what was out of my control. And so like I didn't I didn't do that well in London. Yeah, I was really upset about it. Like things that I was saying to myself were like, I didn't do my best. My family had wasted all of this money coming over to London to watch me. You know, I, I had to reframe that stuff and go, okay, what's within my control and what wasn't within my control? I didn't do my best, no, but I did try my best. I could never have done any more in the lead up to the London Games. Um, in fact, I probably should have done much less in the lead up to the Games because I was actually overtraining, trying to get ready for the Games, and then I kept injuring myself and having to, you know, take another three weeks off, and then, you know, and then I kept rushing to get ready again and then injuring myself, and so I kept on having these setbacks, but I cannot deny that I tried my absolute best. And so that's something that was within my control is how much I tried. And so that, that was success for me because I tried my best. No, I didn't do my best, but I couldn't control that regardless. What I could control was that I tried my best. And yeah, my family had spent lots of money to go over to London to watch the games, but they wanted to, like, that was what they wanted to do. I didn't ask them you know, and so it really had nothing to do with me. It was something they wanted to do. And no, like I hadn't won another Olympic gold medal, but I guess this realization that, um, you know, that I was able to reframe like that to make myself feel better was, was a, a small win for me. But also, you know, going back to the pool later that evening to watch the final that, you know, I, I was supposed to be in, um, I was, was so proud of these boys who were in the final like you know I was cheering like a massive fan girl like I just thought it was so amazing being on this side of the competition watching it and it was so exciting and I was so proud for these guys and it was that pride like I just I realized in that pride that I was feeling for them like who were doing what I was doing just four years earlier I was able to actually feel that pride for myself for being in that position four years ago when I won in Beijing and that moment was when I didn't consider my Olympic gold medal win a fluke. Anyway, that was the first time I didn't consider that Beijing win a fluke. You know, I didn't have a, another gold medal hanging around my neck, but I felt like a happier, healthier person. And I was able to actually appreciate that gold medal that I had won for the first time. And so that was actually more valuable to me than the gold medal itself. Wow, yeah, it's pretty powerful, mate. Yeah, it's and it's it's amazing to you know from my end and anyone else you know who would have been watching from afar to to hear that you know thinking you just see someone win a gold medal and you'd think bloody hell you know that's how could you not you know be 
just on top of the world with that. It's just such a huge thing. It's it's crazy. But it took all of that to, to get to that point. And I love the other point you're making about really a lot of this is about logic. It's, you know, let's control what we can and focus on that. And the rest, it's okay. We can't control it. So spending one extra second thinking about these things we can't control is not going to ever have a positive outcome. The more, the harder we think about it, it's not going to change anything. So it's just not good for ourselves. It's not good for other people. So just put all the attention onto what we can control. And uh, it's amazing, you know, a lot of it, this is all incredibly hard to implement. It takes practice and self-awareness and discipline and continually, you know, like training for the Olympics, you've got to do it every day, all day, every day to make it, you know, really impactful. But that is how we make a change. That's how we can work on ourselves. And um, I think that's also important that, you know, people understand that if you want to improve your mental well-being, if you want to grow as a person, it's not something that you can just decide you're going to do and it will happen. It is like training for the Olympics. You've got to do it all day, every day. I think when people look at mental health, they don't see it as something tangible. So they just, they don't know where to begin. They don't know how do I change it. It's easy if we look at the physical side. So I think you know, thank you for explaining all of that because I think there's so many amazing bits of value in what, what you've described and all your different stories you've you've put into that. Yeah, I mean, if somebody who, like me, I find the tangible much, much easier to understand. And so, you know, if we're thinking about how mental health works, I wholeheartedly agree that it takes practice and it takes, you know, and you're going to get it wrong sometimes. But, you know, if you need to think about it in a tangible way, what are thoughts? Thoughts are a circuit of neurons in your brain. Because the brain is neuroplastic, which means basically it changes and morphs and, and shapes. And um, and so the pathways that get used a lot become very efficient. Uh, it's the same with pain pathways. That's what chronic pain is about. It's, it's nerves that have gotten very efficient at sending pain signals. And so they just do it all the time because it's, they just get really efficient. And so it's the same, same thing about, um, about thought patterns. Thought patterns are the same network of neurons that just, that run this circuit a lot. And so, you know, if you think about that thought, that belief that you have, if you think about it like a, like a groove and every time you think it, that groove just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And so it gets very efficient at carrying that thought. You know, it's the first thought that, that occurs to you whenever something happens. And so it takes a conscious effort to try and have a different thought, you know, to reframe like I did. No, I didn't do my best, but I tried my best. And I had to keep on repeating that to myself over and mm. over and mm. over and over and over. And every time I got upset about how I did, I had to repeat it to myself over and over. No, I tried my best. I tried my best. And every time you do that, you carve a different pathway. And the more often you do it, the deeper that new pathway will become until it becomes so deep that it becomes the automatic channel for when something happens to you, you'll be much better at, at just taking this reframed way of thinking. And so, you know, for me, that's how I make mental health more tangible by, mm -hmm. by creating a sort of a physical example of how it actually works. And it does take training because you have to recarve new patterns of thought in your brain. Yeah. And, you know, that's a, a really good way you've described it there. And it's, um, I mean, it's an exciting thing as well, because when we, when you fully grasp that, that's why I'm so big on habits. I'm similar to you in that I can't change something unless it's very practical and I know what to do every day. And I've just, once I really understood it and was able to apply it to different parts of my life, 
everything now that I want to do, I know, okay, it's going to be tedious, it won't be fun, but I know if I just do this every single day and drum it in, it'll become automatic. And then it's it doesn't take that long, you know, a month, two months of doing it regularly. And you'll almost get more anxiety if you don't do it after that. So you can really condition these very in the same way that we can become conditioned with these stories we tell ourselves that are negative, we can condition the positive ones and make them so habitual and so strong, you know, it's very hard to break that positivity and that side of things. So it's um, it's a really, really powerful thing. And But it yeah. takes action. It, 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 it takes really action. takes action. You know, you can want to change, but wanting to change isn't changing. You know, nothing's gonna, yeah. nothing will change unless something changes. And so putting in action is a change, is a change behavior, and it will lead to change thoughts. Um, and, you know, like you were asking about, you know, tips about how to deal with, you know, a new sort of coronavirus world and, mm. and how to deal with, I guess, you know, the, the thing that came up for me was like having expectations on yourself. And there's this wonderful saying that expectations are really premeditated resentments because, you know, if you have an expectation of something, and especially something that's out of your control, um, if it doesn't happen, then you're setting yourself up for a resentment. So trying to let go of expectations and just, you know, keep it in yourself and what you can control. Um, because when you can control, if it's something that you can do and you can control it, then, you know, you've got accountability for yourself. Um, you know, when it has to, you can't control other people, other places, other things. Um, and so having expectations on other people, places or things is going to set yourself up to have resentments and to be disappointed. And, and the other thing, I guess, that I have started practicing again now since um, coronavirus has happened, which is something that I had been doing for a couple of years, was writing gratitude lists in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I do in the morning again now is write three things that I am grateful for. I know it sounds naff, but it works for me twofold. Firstly, it just gets me in a habit of like, I mean, you can't be hateful when you're grateful, basically, is, is the crux of it. And so, you know, if everything in your day turns to absolute shit and you feel like, you know, what's the point of even, like I've got nothing to live for, you will have thought of three things earlier in that day that you've got in your life. So if everything turns to shit, at least there are three things in your life that you've thought of just that day. And so it, I guess it even puts you in, in the position, in the headspace of actually being grateful for the rest of the day as well. And you're less likely to actually go into that catastrophizing frame of mind if everything were to actually turn to shit. Um, but mm -hmm. the other thing is that I, I actually find it very meditative to actually physically write these and make a little piece of art out of these gratitude lists. I write with calligraphy or I do little doodles around it or basically, you know, I make it a bit of a meditative practice. And that's esteeming in itself because, mm. um, you know, one, not only have I, you know, done this this gratitude list, but I've actually created a little bit of beautiful art that didn't exist before. And so, you know, that makes me feel good about myself that I've created a, something beautiful. Yeah, there's like three things in it. It's putting you into that meditative place. You're making yourself, you're reminding yourself what you're grateful for and all the good things in your life. And like you said, creating this new piece of art that didn't exist. So it's, yeah, really, really powerful. Um, you know, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you so much for sharing all of that. And also, is there, 
anywhere we can direct listeners if they want to learn more about you? I mean, are there certain things, whether it is, you know, looking into you as a speaker, a coach, whatever else, I don't know what, you know, have that we can push, but, you know, it'd be great to be able to give them, let them know, you know, how can they learn more? Yeah, um, at the moment, I'm not set up for any of that because I've literally only been back in the country. Like, I was planning to be in the UK for two years. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, just follow me on social media. On Instagram, I'm Matthew Mitchum 88 um, Twitter, I'm uh, – no, hold on. Uh, what am I? <laughs> oh, on Twitter, I'm Matthew underscore Mitchum, and um, Facebook, I'm Matthew Mitchum Official. You know, I post stuff pretty regularly um, and, um, you know, if I do have anything like that, I usually will put it in like the bio or something like that, you know, if I, you know, if I do have something coming up. Great. Uh, so, yeah, just to finish up, and these are just, you know, quick ones. I don't have to be long-winded answers, just whatever comes to mind that we finish every episode with. So the first one is uh, best childhood memory. Oh, um, I guess... It's something involving animals. So I, I had dogs, guinea pigs, rabbits, and a bird at one stage. Yeah. I had a few. <laughs> yeah, I had, nice. six, I had over 60 guinea pigs at one stage that had like over... free-range guinea pigs in the backyard, yeah. My God. What, at once you had over 60 or like over no, accumulatively? No, at, at literally at one time there were over 60 That is insane. My so God. In total, I'm sure we, we had well over 100 um, over time. <laughs> it's a lot of guinea pigs all right the next one um what do you think currently in the world is the biggest uh burden on mental health trump yeah that's um okay well where do you see mental health in 10 years time where do you see it going do you see, see it improving or do you see things declining or you know what what do you see um improving i think um i believe that Awareness is improving all the time. Um, awareness around sexuality and gender, I think, has improved a lot over the last 10 years um, and will continue to improve. Yeah, I, awareness is a double-edged sword, especially when it comes to yourself um, and your own, I don't know, your own stuff uh, with making changes, you know, like, because you're going to be aware of, like, a, you know, something, a behaviour. But, and change doesn't come straight away. And so because there's awareness of the behavior and the change hasn't happened yet, quite, it's more painful because you're aware, you're aware of when Absolutely, you're yeah. on those behaviors. But I, I feel like world awareness on, you know, on different issues, on women's issues like Me Too, um, on issues of sexuality and, and trans visibility, yeah, on race issues as well. Visibility and awareness is um, is improving a lot in underrepresented communities. and. Um, and I think that can only be a good thing. Hundred percent, and you know, it looks like it'll just keep moving that way. Which you know, it would be an amazing thing in ten years. A lot of progress can be made. So, just two more here. What What is your personal definition of happiness? My personal definition of happiness is being able to be satisfied with the clothes on my back, mm. and nothing. I else. love that. Yeah, absolutely. Which is really, I love actually, that. that's very that's yeah. very hard to achieve. Um, you know, to, um, I'm still still getting there myself. <laughs> yeah, it's especially in a world where um, yeah, where there are such nice clothes. <laughs> even the clothes on your back, exactly. It's like even that can be turned into, you know, I, I need better nice clothes, clothes or I need this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's um, crazy. So that's that's that would be nice. If I were able to completely stop comparing myself to others 
then you know actually comparison probably for me my own personal my own personal definition of happiness would be um to be able to never compare myself to others yeah yeah absolutely i i think that is one of the biggest things that robs us of our peace of mind comparing we you know we can I love my life and I'm so happy with everything I'm doing, but then daily I'll still get caught up into, you know, looking at a friend who's making more money or doing something bigger and better or someone else. I know it's often even friends that you have because then you think, oh, that should be achievable to me. And it's just this vicious cycle. It's like, be okay with, you know, we're all on a different journey. Uh, so final one, uh, most courageous thing you've ever done. I'm sure uh, there's many. We've We've heard many in this, so, but yeah coming out about my um, history with, you know, with mental ill health and addiction, I think was brave for me. I mean, it's brave for anybody to do. Like, I feel reluctant to say like, oh yeah, I think that was the bravest thing I did because I don't want it to seem like to other people that it's like such a big thing that it's, it might almost be insurmountable. The rewards that came from me sharing my history with mental ill health um, and drug abuse, the rewards have been the best rewards I've ever had in my life. Like sharing was infinitely rewarding for me. And, um, and so it was the best experience of my life to just share my story. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing it again today, mate. And uh, I majorly appreciate you coming on here. I know this is going to help people and I have personally have huge admiration and respect for everything that you're about just personally what you stand for and i feel privileged to be able to have this chat with you so thank you again for doing it thanks nick anytime appreciate it mate this episode of move your mind was produced and edited by tim boozer would like to thank john holland for proudly sponsoring this episode thanks to matthew mitchum for joining me today for move your mind Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Move Your Mind. We're going to be releasing new episodes every week and we would love it if you could subscribe on your favorite platform, leave a comment, leave a star rating, recommend us to a friend and help support us on this journey. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.